This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Wildcatter Nation? Thanks for tuning in and joining us for another great episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. If you've listened to us for quite some time, you might remember that we had the Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sidden on the show a few months ago, and we talked about how he had lost the Republican nomination and how now he's going back to the private sector. Well, we just so happened to meet the man who beat him, Mr. Jim Wright. It's a crazy election year, and honestly, I'm so sick of politics, but this industry is near and dear to our hearts, as you guys know, so we wanted to answer the question, who is Jim Wright? I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. But before we get into the episode, this episode is powered by W Energy Software. So where are all my midstream people at? This one is for you. And we know upstream tends to get all the love. And I'll have to admit, we just haven't seen as near as much innovation in the midstream space compared to upstream. But that's why we're excited about what W Energy Software is doing for all of you midstream players. You know our mantra is evolve or die. But regardless of sector, survival is still going to be the name of the game for 2020 and 2021. So how can you evolve? How can your organization evolve? You've got to leverage the latest technologies that'll help you keep your GNA costs down while unleashing new levels of productivity and efficiency for your teams. Simply put, you've got to be able to do a whole lot more with a whole lot less. W Energy Software's cloud-based midstream ERP is doing just that. Now they've already replaced 22 legacy plant accounting systems because they're able to accelerate plant processing time by as much as 150X. And let me tell you, your daddy spreadsheet can't do that. On top of that, We've heard nothing but good things about their team, particularly their customer support team. So if you're still using spreadsheets or you're using legacy software that's over five years old, or your team is having a hard time keeping up with the workload, please do yourself a favor and give these guys a call. W Energy Software will help you do way more with way less by keeping your GNA costs down and dramatically increasing team's efficiency. And one of my favorite parts is that it's all packaged up in a clean and sleek, modern user interface that is super simple to use. So if you want to learn more about how they can help you, just visit wenergysoftware.com or click the link in the show notes below. What's going on, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. Here's the funny thing. Today has nothing to do about startups, but you know what it does have to do with? Our beloved oil and gas industry. Jim Wright, thank you for joining us today. Well, I, think it, I think it does have something to do with startups. Jim's, uh, <laughs> Jim's an entrepreneur and, and business that is owner true. Himself, that is true. So. We, we were chatting before we got on the mic. Jim has been in the industry longer than we've been alive. Not combined, but individually. Okay, <laughs> he, he ain't that quite that old. Almost but. combined. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think I, I read up a little bit on you. I, I kind of went against my cardinal rule. I did a little bit of research. Uh, you've run, I think, at least four different companies over the last 30-something years. Actually, it's 14 different companies that I've run. I was off by 10. Yeah. I was off by 10. There Four or 14 <laughs> is close. You're just missing a one. Yeah. So that's so that's super exciting. I love talking to guys who've been in our industry a long time, guys like you who've, who've been there, they've done it. You know, we're young, we're hungry. I love to learn from guys like you, right? And so I think it's super exciting. Let's go ahead and just set the stage. Uh, we had Ryan sitting in here several months ago, ago. Yeah. five months ago. I don't know how long ago it was. Um, and you beat Ryan in the election, right? Or is it the election yes. or is it the nominee process? I don't know. Well, the primary, you, know, primary, okay. you go through a primary whenever you're, somebody's running against an incumbent and then okay. whatever, who's ever successful in that, depending on how the race comes out, you may have a runoff yeah. from that. But, uh, there were only two, it was just me and Ryan running on the, on the Republican ticket and okay. uh, was successful in winning their primary. So now we're in the general election against a democratic opponent. 
When is the general election? When does it take place? Now, November 3rd is the same as we are in the presidential election. You know, and this, this, this year, I don't want to get off topic, but I don't know that a lot of people know this, but in Texas, this is one of the only years that we've had what's called non-straight ticket voting. So what that means is when you go into the polls, you can vote for whoever you want to. You don't have to pick a party to vote under. Interesting. So this is going to be a kind of a experimental year. It's going to be critical. But I think it gives everybody out there the choice of voting for the right candidate to do the right job, which I kind of like. You know, I yeah. think that's going to be great did, for Did Texas. there used to be some kind of law or rule that recently changed? No, or? you know, it's kind of set up, I think, uh, you're, you're, again, you're not talking to a politician. So I, I think Texas just kind of votes on that internally okay. through the parties and, and how that's going to be. I'm, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, I think that, uh, again, when you used to walk in the polls, and this happened in the primary, you know, you walked in, you had to tell the, the voting people, are you Republican or are you Democrat? And when you walked in, you had the choice of Republicans to vote for, but you had no choices on the Democratic side. And usually our general elections would run that way. You, you're either Republican or you're Democrat or you're Libertarian, depending on what you were when you walked in, and they would give you the choices, you know, there. Mm-hmm. You could do a straight ticket vote or straight t- ticket type voting. So what that meant, it would save you time. You could go in and check and say, okay, I want all the Democrats or I want all the Republicans or the Libertarians mm-hmm. and walk out. Well, it's not that way this year. You you walk in and you actually have to go down this ticket. So like where you guys are from in Houston, your ticket's going to be a pickup long. I mean, it's going to be huge because you got a lot of races occurring November 3rd. And it's really, really important that people go all the way down that ballot because without the support of your ju- ju- judicial judges and and everyone else, it's hard to, to help people like us at the top, your mm-hmm. president, your congressman, your railroad commissioner, those people. Yeah. It's also tough for the voters because now you have to know every single candidate, right? It's, like, it's almost overwhelming to think about, like, knowing kind of, like, if you want to be educated enough to make an educated vote, like, knowing enough about each one of these candidates and, like, their backstories. I know. And you just, it's overwhelming. You have to go in there and just pencil whip it and it's like, yeah. oh, yeah. I like that person's name. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that happens a lot. That happens even in straight ticket voting, by the way. You know, it, it uh, that brings up a good point, though, is educating people. And I think, you know, in today's times, education is something that we all as Americans need to start looking at and putting facts out there that people can rely on. And, not, you know, we see a lot of stuff today that's that's put out on social media. Media is so easy to access now. Anyone can do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what do you believe? Mm-hmm. You know, the education process, I think we need to start doing as Americans is, you know, if, if you're going to stand on something, stand on something that's factually based. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, if you have a belief about something strongly from facts, that's great. But if you're believing on something that's not factually based, that's that's not a that's just kind of a tragedy. And I think that's why we're in the position we are today. Absolutely. I 100 percent agree. I'm so I'm dying to like get into your backstory and I want to learn who is Jim Wright. Before we do that, you're running for railroad commissioner. What is the railroad commission for those who didn't hear our episode with Ryan Sitton? And if it's the first time kind of hearing about the railroad commission, they're like, what does this have to do with oil and gas? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, the, the railroad commission is, is for those that don't know the, the, an agency that controls the most important economic driver for us here in Texas, which is oil and gas. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think people realize that oil and gas is is our foundation of our economy. If oil and gas went away, Texas would be hard-pressed to to be the leader that we're kind of become accustomed to. Mm-hmm. You know, Texas has become a state that I, I've grown great pride in 
And it's a great place to live because I think our livelihood here is better than any other state in our nation. Mm -hmm. And it's based on oil and gas. So that agency, the Railroad Commission, regulates that that industry, oil and gas, uranium, coal mining, pipelines. We oversee safety and environmental concerns there. That that is our duty that's that's mandated by legis- Texas legislature. In addition to that, there there is an unspoken duty that we as commissioners need to help lead that industry forward to make sure there's sustainability and, and it's protected from other outside forces so that our, our economics here in Texas remain strong. Mm-hmm. So let's dive into your background. I want to know, you know, <laughs> how did you get into the oil business? You know, you said that you ran 14 businesses. I mean, we can talk here for two hours if we wanted to dive into all of them. But, you know, yeah, I mean, and watch me because I might talk for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll run there with you, man. I'll, I'll go word for word. So, yeah, tell us, you know, how did you get into the oil business and um, how did how did you get into running businesses yourself? And then we'll, we'll go from there. You know, I um, my, my background has always been uh, farming and ranching. I grew mm-hmm. up on on a farm and ranch, and, and um, we had an incident when I was really young. A house burned down on, on a particular ranch, and we uh, ended up moving to another farm and ranch. And, and where we moved, there was a hazardous waste facility. And whenever I say hazardous waste, you got to realize in Texas, there's only two landfills that can accept what's qualified as hazardous waste. One of them is in Robstown, Texas, real close to where I grew up. In fact, that landfill was a quarter mile south of, of our home. Mm. So in the early 70s, when I was 9, 10, 11 years old and growing up through high school, of course, the the odor before regulation really became better than it was back then, the odors were horrendous. There were days that, that I, we would have to go inside and close the windows and, and you know, just because you couldn't get, get your breath. It, wow. it was bad. You know, but as re- regulation evolved, all that started to be taken care of. It's just what time brings and technology brings. So. Uh, in graduating high school, my passion really was ranching. I, I love cows. Uh, I love being around that. Uh, you know, to me, that's my relaxation. Today, I still ranch. But I also got into rodeoing. And, uh, you know, I, I just, today even, uh, I crave getting on a bull. I rode bulls for 20 years. Did you really? Yes. 20 years? 20 that's years a long time around. to ride bulls. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, that's, a, that's a lot of impact. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, and I went through high school, and then I was so good at bull riding that I was offered three different scholarships at three different colleges to go on a full boat ride. Wow, oh, wow. But my mom and dad had fallen on some really hard financial times, and, and it was unspoken. They, they didn't come out and ask me, hey, Jim, we need help. You know, I just growing up there, I could see that my parents needed help, and, and I felt like I'd be better off going and getting a job and making sure that they were taken care of. Yep. You know, I, I remember uh, my mom and dad owned a home, and they owned one car. And back when I was 16, I didn't really give it much thought, but they bought me a vehicle to drive. And today I'm thinking, how did they even afford to do that? You know, Yeah. but, but when I graduated, I recognized that I really needed help them. So I, so I got in that pickup that they had bought me and I drove down to that facility that it was south of us. And I said, Hey, I'm the little guy that y'all been passing every day on your way to work. And I've had to smell your stuff most of my life here. And if anybody deserves a job, it's me. Mm-hmm. And the guy looked at me and goes, you know, you're exactly right. What can you do? I said, well, I can run heavy equipment because my dad had worked for a mining company. And, and so I learned how to run some heavy equipment. And they gave me a job starting to run heavy equipment. And I really got fascinated in, uh, in what they were doing from the environmental side. You know, that back then, Railroad Commission did not have any, per se, disposal facilities that they had permitted or, or knew how to permit and manage. 
everything was coming to industrial facilities, whether it was generated from the oil field, refineries, or utilities, or government, it was coming to industrial-type landfills such as that one. <clears throat> and, and bringing those wastes in and how he categorized those wastes fascinated me. You know, it's just, it just was something I really took off on. And so I would go home at night and I would read uh, what's called the Code of Federal Regulations. I don't know if you guys have ever read that before. <laughs> no, I haven't. No. <laughs> I haven't picked up that light reading. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not fun, but it, but it was fascinating to me to not only read that and understand more about what it was I was doing, but to, to look at what was coming in the future as far as new rules coming down the road. And, and I remember one particular back in the 80s, the EPA came out with what's called land disposal restrictions. And they, they, what they were saying to the, to the industry is, look, guys, if you create a pesticide or, or certain volatile organics or metals, before you put them in the ground, you're going to have to pass certain treatment standards so that we can assure that if that landfill fails in containing that, we don't get something really bad into our groundwater, which mm-hmm. meant you had to kind of mix and treat these chemicals before you put it in a land application. I think it was about eight years after I'd been working at that facility. And, and, and by that time, I was a manager, and I was, I was doing off-site remediation work for them. And I was going to corporate meetings, which was in Louisville, Kentucky. And we were at one of the corporate meetings, and I was standing on the table pretty much screaming at them. If we don't, you know, prepare for these new rules coming down, we're not going to have any business. They looked at me like I, said, like I was kind of crazy. You know, we've been doing this for years. This is what we do. We're not changing. So... When the LDRs got passed, their business really went south. Mm. It was sad. I ended up going to work for a for another company in Houston that opened an office in Corpus as their manager. And in that, uh, the owner then wanted to take that company and make it a public company. So he had me coming to Houston pretty much four or five days a week to sit down with investment bankers and talk about dollars and profits and EBITDA and all those all those numbers. <laughs> And so that's that that really taught me my financial background mm. in addition to the operational side. And I and I remember making him a promise. I said, you know, this is not my cup of tea. I'm I'm not I'm not cut of that cloth. And and uh but when you go public, I'm leaving. So we shook hands and that was a deal. On the day he went public, I I was gone. You're out of there. <laughs> and, uh, I don't want no part of this. Yeah. And I and I went to a bank and I said, you know, I t- and I told the banker, I said, I want to start my own company and I said, I need to borrow $10,000. And it took me like a month for them to approve that $10,000. And I thought, man, that's a lot of money. I don't know how I'm going to pay it back, but I'm going to start my own company. <laughs> oh, what year was that? <coughs> 1991. Okay. And um, so I started my first company. And and, uh, and in 96, I had, a, I had a public company come and say, hey, would you be interested in selling? We'd love to sell and we'll trade our stock for your stock. And we're a public stock. And and I thought, you know, I'm a young kid. I'm the smartest guy on the planet. I'm going to do this deal. <laughs> <laughs> and so I trade stock with them, and their stock just just kept going up and up. And, I, you know, I couldn't pat myself on the back enough to thinking how smart I was. And then I wake up one morning, and their stock had just tanked because that was back in the IPO roll-up days where, mm-hmm. you know, they were just throwing companies together to run stock prices up. Yeah. Well, that's basically what this buyer had done. And uh, – so when they were caught kind of doing that and me waking up that morning, I'm like, I'm the dumbest guy on this planet. <laughs> <laughs> well, but from I did, the smartest guy to the dumbest guy quick. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I did, I did one thing smart though. And in, in the agreement that I signed with them, that if their stock had fallen below a certain price, 
I had a buyback provision. Mm-hmm. So I was able to buy back the stock and kind of continue on. And I and I I broke the company up into a couple other companies and then bought some shares as we moved along in time and other companies. That's the reason I was telling you I'm, I've been associated with 14 companies since yeah. 1991. Because, you know, when you when you run successful companies, there's always deals that come along. Some are good, some are bad. And trust me, I've that's been a 50-50 mix for me. But, you know, it's it's been good. It so is. this business that you started in 91, it, it was an environmental business, is that correct? Yeah, actually it was an emergency response environmental business. We, okay. we started with a contract with a, a public utility that, that provided electricity before de- deregulation and they pretty much had San Antonio South. So every time they had a transformer that leaked oil, uh, we we were hired to go out and clean up those fills and test that the, it was they were cleaned up and do what we called reports back to the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality on those cleanups and it would surprise you how often a transformer fails. Oh yeah. So that you know it really kind of shot our business up quickly and, and and we moved on and we I think you had mentioned something earlier about you know ups and downs in businesses and mm-hmm. you know we made a couple of acquisitions before I sold the first time we bought a pipeline company. Oh, wow. To put in pipelines, and uh, they had done real well. We paid a lot of money for them, and I don't think it stopped raining the entire year after we bought this pipeline company, and we <laughs> bought it in Perlin, Texas, and we had these projects, and it was like, we're never going to go to work. It's rained every day, practically. We have such a similar story to <laughs> that because <laughs> we say, oh, yeah. yeah. And I yeah. thought, oh, my Jesus, well, you know, uh, this is not a good acquisition. So we ended up uh, selling the assets, and we got out of the pipeline business, and I've learned you know, after two or three times more than that, that to stay in what I know and it uh, usually works out for me. If I, if I venture off into stuff, I don't really know a whole lot about, I, I usually don't do very well. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a pretty good rule to follow. It's a pretty good rule. Of thumb. <laughs> yeah, I think so, that, that it's such a funny story with the, uh, with the rain comment, because uh, a lot of people that follow us know that we bought some oil wells up in Oklahoma and the year that we owned them was the rainiest year on record for Northeast Oklahoma. And we just couldn't get any work done on the wells. And so that, it, that held back all of our yeah, operations. You guys must have ate at the same restaurant I did. Yes, yeah, <laughs> we had the same bad yeah. bad juju as you, yeah. man. You know, it, it, but but I can tell you this this um, th- this time in my life is is entirely different for me because you know I I'm, I was young like you guys once and and I would think you know I was always thinking I need to be bigger I need to be you know more I need to be this and and I had a had a really bad thing happen in our family in 2017 to my wife and it changed my whole outlook on life. You know, it changed to where, you know, some promises that, that I made to God for what he did for me and my, my family and to, to make sure that I that I do whatever I can to make things better for us here in Texas, for better people in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and it got to where my businesses today are, are run by people that I've hired. I've got really good folks that work for me. Mm-hmm. It's given me the time to want to go out and run for this race and start making some changes. And that's what that's what. Uh, you know, it was one of the decisions for me, yeah, me making that. Yeah. I was going to ask you, you know, what drives you to go from um, owning and operating businesses to wanting to all of a sudden jump into a political position? You know, the first thing that you told me when you walked in, you're just like, no, I'm not a politician. <laughs> no, and definitely not that. Yeah. You know, and um, if it's just a completely different world, right? Going from business, being an entrepreneur to going into the political landscape. So, you know, for you, is, is that kind of what drove you is to have a higher purpose to help, um, help it people was, help you know, Texas? It, you know, 
what God's done for me in, in, in keeping things together for us after my wife's accident has been tremendous. And, and I made some commitments in, in uh, asking for him to help me do that, that, that was one of the big factors of me throwing my hat in this ring. And then secondly, you know, as, as the shale, you guys are familiar with what happened in, with the shale. We discovered mm-hmm. the shale. And if y'all remember back in the eighties, we didn't think we had any gas or oil. Mm-hmm. That's what brought us to trading with foreign countries to buy oil. And that's what, brought us to tooling our um, our refineries mostly on heavier crude like mm-hmm. you get from foreign countries yep. today. You know, with the discovery of the shale, that changed completely changed the dynamics in this deal. So naturally, my company's revenue trailed behind, you know, what was hot and what was going, which was the oil field. And we, we got more involved in dealing with them in handling permits with the Railroad Commission or violations with the Railroad Commission. And as, have got a pretty good customer base in that side um, from the environmental aspect. And it, it was in that, that I saw at the railroad commission that they have got some staff that not, not necessarily understands the oil and gas industry and, and the economics of how, you know, how that works for Texas and how important that economics is for Texas. And that, you know, a lot of those don't, don't bring the experience. They, they set them down and they say, okay, we need you to do X job. And here's the rules that are around these, this X job. And I don't know if you guys have ever read governmental rules, but there, there are a lot of interpretation in there. They're like reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. So if you give an inexperienced person that, that rule and ask them to make an interpretation, you're going to start having delays. You're going to, you know, you're going to have, which, which, essentially impact what our economic growth is, which was what was happening to my customer base. So I actually had some of our customers and and a couple other people that said, hey, we'll volunteer our time if if we can get the Railroad Commission to accept us to come in and help write guidance documents for, you know, staff members to kind of follow. So we get a a better level playing field, you know, in timeliness and, and making sure that our economy is moving along and that, that it's not held up waiting on decisions by the railroad commission because somebody is inexperienced. And I actually, I went up, I talked to one of the commissioners and, uh, and they said, yeah, that, that we think that's a great idea. We'll give you access to staff. Well, <clears throat> lo and behold to us, we didn't meet one staff member that really wanted to work with an outside task force to, to write guidance documents. They were, they were adamantly against that. Mm-hmm. So the task force that I formed looked at me since I was a the guy that formed it and said, Jim, we, you know, we really, really would want to make these changes. And would you consider running for railroad commissioner? That was in July of 2019. It was actually December 6th. I'll never, I'll never forget that day. Because uh, December 7th is my wife and I's uh, anniversary, and she loves to play slot machines. So we, <laughs> we, we hopped in a, a private plane, and we left uh, Sitton, Texas, which is near where we our ranch is, and, and we're flying. And, and, and I looked at her, and I said, do you mind if I stop in Austin? She said, for what? I said, well, I want to register for railroad commissioner. And she looked at me and said, you, you are a nut. <laughs> and, uh, so I did, and, and uh, you know— it 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 was amazing going through the primary, but I, but I think you know, me beating the incumbent Ryan Sinton, uh, you know, I, I think Ryan Sinton's a a great guy, but I think it goes to show that people in Texas are wanting more surety in what that industry brings, and they need a change. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, you know I've heard I heard a couple people say this, but I'll say it again. I think people are starting to recognize that we need to keep 
uh, less government out of our business and more business in our government. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, our president today has tried to prove that point of just using common sense of how we do things in our future, like you would do running a business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, on on that talking point, when you look at the Railroad Commission and what you guys have to do, you know, you have a lot to take into consideration, both from an environmental standpoint and an economic perspective as well. And the hot topic has been, you know, natural gas flaring. <laughs> and, you know, this is this is the hot the hot button issue. Everyone's talking about it. You know, how do you think about flaring in terms of, OK, you know, the economic impact that it can have on whether we restrict it or we permit it? Um, the environmental impact that it has on uh, carbon dioxide and, um, you know, essentially wasting natural resources. I mean, it just like blows me away, you know, mm-hmm. when you drive out into the Permian and there's just flares everywhere, just burning off resources. You know, how do you think about handling those situations? And I know this is a loaded question and it's the question that everyone wants to know, but I think about it a lot too, because it's not just a black and white binary answer. There's, there's impacts both to the environment and the economic, um, situation of Texas. So I think that's a great question. I mean, and it is, it's, it's a big thing on what this race is being run on this year. It seems to be have all the public's attention, but you know, let's just, let's kind of categorize that number one. When you talk about flaring, is have can you tell me of any exact research that really says that flaring is actually harming our atmosphere, and any worse than emissions from a car or anything else that they they're they're claiming is making changes to our climate that we we see today? Yeah, I mean, I personally can't point to yeah, any research. Right. You know, there's a lot of documents out there, but nobody's proven to me exactly in pinpoint what what is really hurting our atmosphere. And being an environmentalist all my life, you know, what I, what I do know about our Earth is we have evolved and we continue to evolve. And I can tell you that summers are going to get hotter, whether we had flaring or we had cars, because Earth is evolving. And we, we, we've done that. We've proven that we've evolved. So, you know, I'm not sure where the blame lies there. But when you talk about trying to curb flaring, you're, you're, you're really kind of a double-edged sword here. You know, um, if we said, okay, today Railroad Commission announces that we're never going to issue another flaring permit um, because we think it's hurting the atmosphere, well, we, we've just hurt the consumer. And you're asking, mm-hmm. well, why, how, how does that hurt the consumer? Well, you know, Today's technology and flaring is the best that is available on the market. And, and I can tell you, the oil and gas industry from the environmental side, those guys don't only strive to look for technology, but the last thing they want to do is take gas and burn it off in the atmosphere. They want that gas to be turned to cash. Yeah. So when I, when I talk about that double-edged sword, you know, it, if, if we did issue and said, okay, no more flaring, that would stop a lot of the production and a lot of the drilling moving forward. And as, as we evolve out of this COVID thing and, and supply, you know, diminishes, if that were to occur and demand increases, what happens to pricing? So you're going to have the public and whenever we get on the flip side of COVID and, and if that was in, what are they going to be, what are they going to be saying then? Mm-hmm. You know, well, you did a great job of making me pay $5 a gallon for gas. Yeah. So when I talk about a double-edged sword, that's that's kind of what I'm talking about. You know, um, flaring really is uh, 
is something that that I think that I think we've done a great job of keeping up with. The problem is, is that it, it, it's economics. You know, my my opponent says that we need to take that gas and turn it into electricity there for the wellhead. And whatever excess gas that is, we need to put it on the grid and sell it as electricity. Those, those are all good points, except for, for a couple of things that's being missed there and not spoken about, which is, you know, pretty good about the extreme leftist side. Number one, there's no way that, that production, whenever you first drill that hole, is going to take all that gas and use it for elect, the small electrical requirements on there. And I will say that, that our oil field today, especially in your bigger industry players, they're they're using renewable energy technology to help power that today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just better economics for them. <clears throat> but when you, when you look at trying to put that infrastructure in, economics don't work. And then you say, okay, well, let's we're going to run electrical lines out there. Uh, that's a PUC issue, Public Utilities Commission. Mm-hmm. Public Utility Commission just doesn't let you run a power line somewhere. <laughs> that's a very complicated. Comp- complicated system whenever you talk about the electrical grid yeah and the way it is set up today the electrical grid is mandated that we have to allow wind energy first on the grid uh and and then fossil fuels is allowed onto the grid so what i'm saying is is when the wind's blowing however many wind generators are out there they get priority onto that grid which causes some of our natural gas plants to have to shut down to allow that electricity to get on there Mm -hmm. i didn't know that so I think it's impossible today, to, to be honest, to even get the, the infrastructure set up to turn that to electricity, not to mention what it would cost to put a power generation plant at each one of these low, uh, well locations to turn that into electricity. Yeah. Economics don't work. Have you heard of a company called Crusoe Energy? Yes, I have. So I, I think it's really interesting. You know, this company's raised, I think, $70 million mm-hmm. to turn wasted uh, flare gas into, or natural gas, into um, powering data centers and, yeah. you know, selling computing power and mining Bitcoin and things of that nature. And so I think that those are really interesting as well. You know, the, the point that you make is 100%, you know, it's like, okay, even if you generate this electricity, how do you get it back into the grid? How do you do it at scale and make it economical? But I think that it's interesting to look at things such as um, having remote data centers and um, turning that into into fuel for them. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more as long as the economics works mm-hmm. and it's not a tax subsidized uh, industry mm-hmm. like your wind industry and your solar power and your batteries are today. When when in reality the we subsidize that industry and we do that. And what the government tells us, you know, I'll put this as layman in as I, as I can is if we want to protect our environment, you're going to have to essentially pay more. So we're going to offer these subsidies. And if you, if you use it, California as an example, you, you guys have heard about the blackouts, right? Yeah. Same thing there that, you know, they have to lay, allow their solar and their wind energy priority on that grid. Well, they, they've done that for so long now that power plants are, are, to the point of not really having any initiative to start back up again whenever wind or sun goes away. So you have rolling blackouts. That's what causes that. And And then your differential price on that gas going into California, I think it was like at a six plus six spread. That's exactly right. You know, and so you're looking at consumers in California today that are starting to question this, like, why am I paying so much more for my electricity here when I'm not getting half the service that the rest of our nation is? 
you know, I'm not against renewable. I'm all for renewable energy, but it has to make economic sense and it has to be good for us, the consumer. Mm-hmm. And, and we also have to, to, you know, and I'm okay with paying a little bit more if we can protect the environment. But, you know, there's no facts out right now that people even know about what renewable energy and solar power and wind really does to our environment. I'm t- I can tell you, I think they harm our environment worse than our natural gas problems are today. But going back to that flaring issue that we were talking about earlier, I think as a railroad commission, we need to look at maybe decreasing rules on gathering that gas. And when I say de- decreasing, making where that that infrastructure is kept up with production. And the only way to do that is make it make it economical. So we're going to have to look at those rules and maybe lessen those rules a little bit, keep in place the environmental and safety aspects, but maybe redoing what the pipe's made out of, whatever it, whatever it takes to get it to transmission to get it turned into cash. Again, there there's not a there's not a, a producer out there that wants to burn their gas off in the atmosphere. It's yeah. just like burning cash. The problem yeah. is, is infrastructure and production don't necessarily stay neck and neck. Yeah. So you know when we talk about impact on the environment. You know, those are the facts in the education that I talked about earlier. You know, I'll take solar panels, for instance, and I'll, and I'll try to be simple with it. Uh, have you guys ever been past a huge solar farm anywhere? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How much grass you see growing underneath them? None. Did you know that solar, wind energy, and battery is not regulated by, by any of the regulations as far as environmental that the fossil fuel is? They're exempt. No, I didn't know that. So what makes solar panels really efficient? It's the lithium? L- lack of regulation. <laughs> no. If they're dirty, they're not efficient. So they constantly have to be clean. If you don't have an environmental regulation, what are you going to use to clean them with? The most harsh detergent that you can. Brake cleaner. <laughs> that keeps them clean for the longest period that you can, correct? So I was saying it's lack of regulation so, that allows it to be efficient yeah. because so you can you do things see, like that. Yeah, right. So when you don't see gas or grass growing underneath them, there's a problem there. But they're mm-hmm. not required to go out and test that soil. They're not required to do run-on, run-off controls like we, the industry, are. Yeah. Wind generation. You guys are young. Uh, what are you all, in your 30s or so? Yeah, 30. Yeah. Well, back when I was a kid this time of year especially, it was nothing to just see flocks and flocks of geese that would head south for the winter. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. How many flocks of geese you see today? None. I don't think I've ever seen a flock I was of thinking geese about that the other adult. day. <laughs> well, I think about it. Yeah. Yeah, because like when I lived in Lubbock, I'd see geese all the time flying through, and then you don't see them anymore. Yeah. And, you know, I think even today we're, we're kind of having a northern blow through, right? Mm-hmm. So you got cold air that's overtaking hot air and what that causes is thermals and, and you'll have a high rise in what's called a thermal. And you see a lot of buzzards, especially down in South Texas where I was from. Yeah. They would catch those thermals and ride them way up in the sky, you know, just flocks and herds of them. Mm-hmm. I never see that anymore either, you know, but there's reasons for that. Yeah. Uh, I had one shit on my shoulder at the park over here in Katie. Like they just sit <laughs> in the trees now and I was walking on Roman. and you know, get back up into the thermals up in the sky, get away from me. <laughs> so why I'm blown. Why aren't they regulated? Why aren't they regulated? Yeah, why aren't they regulated? Because we've said that they're they're so great for the environment, we're not going to regulate them. Again, oh my goodness. what I've just told you guys are not facts that are that are put out to the public. You know, I I, I condemn or not condemn, but I criticize our our oil and gas industry and even the railroad commission for not putting up a fight and educating people on the differences. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not against renewable energy at all. I think it's a great thing. But, it, but you need to measure apples and apples. Yeah. And you need to know the facts behind that. Yeah. You know, I, I think that solar, 
wind. All those are good when technology uh, is there to make sure they're good. Today, I don't think the technology truly exists. It was an idea. It caught on and, hey, we're going to save the planet because our icebergs aren't going to melt anymore. You haven't convinced me at all of that. I don't see the research that proves that. Again, my own theory is I think the earth continues to evolve just like we have for millions of years. And we're going to go through different times as time progresses. Um, I'm not saying that that flaring, flaring doesn't have some impact, but does it have the true impact that you see in media today? I don't mm -hmm. believe that. When in fact, you know, um, 2011, we were just kind of starting to shell, I believe. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, the difference between how many wells were drilled in 2011 and how many dr- wells are drilled in 2019, we've actually reduced flaring tremendously, over 70%. So, te- you know, oil and gas industry stays up with technology. Again, why would they even want to flare when it's burning cash in the air? Yeah. Just just keep thinking in that context, you know, go, oh, okay. So, you know, they don't only follow the rules. They search every day for new technology to try to get that turned into cash. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So do you think that, you know, with these oil and gas companies and obviously, you know, ESG is becoming bigger and bigger and, you know, there's a ton of uh, institutional money dumping into it. How do oil and gas companies get incentivized to adopt technologies? Like there, there's, I think about clean energy in a very pragmatic manner. We had a company come on the podcast the other day called Power Century. And the way that their technology works is that um, when a pump jack strokes up, it generates all this power and, mm-hmm. and electricity. And then when it goes back down, it has a break and there's wasted energy that gets routed into a battery and then rerouted back to the pump jack to power it up as it's coming back Mm -hmm. up. They can save an oil and gas company 20% on their electricity usage. And then uh, Kevin at Intellis Capital told me the other day that 10% of all electricity used is for extracting resources out of the ground. So if you have a technology like this that helps oil and gas companies save 20% on electricity usage, it's making a big dent in, um, you know, the overall energy consumption. But, you know, for them, it's easy because you can go to an EMP and say, hey, we're going to save you all this money on your lease operating costs and boost your ESG score. You know, what if there's some technologies out there that can help oil and gas companies in Texas be cleaner, but it may not make economical sense? Do you ever see any type of incentives from a federal uh, federal level or a state level to incentivize companies? Not necessarily from an economic impact. I mean, there's the ESG standard that you refer to. But, you know, I think oil and gas companies have have spent a a huge amount of their income on protecting the environment and what they do today. You had mentioned something about batteries and and the downstroke on a pump jack and Mm -hmm. what that creates. I can guarantee you that if that makes economic sense to them, that, that, that would be happening. You know, I mentioned to you guys earlier, a lot of that's powered today off solar panel. Mm-hmm. A lot of that's powered off wind generation. At the yeah, you go out location. there. I mean, they're running chemicals off of solar. You know, yeah. you see solar panels you know, on and, all and, locations. And those are places that are good use. You know, the, the point that I made earlier, when you're trying to mass produce that to to run a country on, that that that, that technology is truly not here today. And, it, 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 and if we had to do that, what we would be doing to the environment would be a lot worse than what we're doing with fossil fuel mm-hmm. today. Now, will technology continue? You just brought it up. I mean, that's a very good point. If that pump jack is going down and it's not doing anything and you can power a battery with it, I think that's great. But that's the technology that we got to continue to evolve with. Mm-hmm. And, and I can tell you that, uh, you know, the oil and gas industry certainly doesn't want to flare their gas off. So they always search for two, new technology to, 
to make sure that they can turn that into cash. Yeah. They want to make and money. And I'm not advocating the for the industry. I'm just telling you facts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's what, you know, the technologies <clears throat> that I get most excited about in the next five years are ones that make an impact on ESG, but also make sense economically because it's such a big value proposition mm-hmm. that, you know, um, it, it, the, the renewable energy has got even our, our investment community kind of messed up right now. Oh, kind of very, <laughs> very, very messed yeah. up. Yeah. I don't want to say that, but very. You what know, other, what other kind of like big problems are you, are you seeing that you like really want to tackle? I mean, I haven't, admittingly, I don't follow politics a whole lot. And uh, I guess things in Texas, I guess, are a little bit more uh, relevant to me, particularly the Railroad Commission. So like what, outside of flaring, outside of everything else we mentioned, like we never have any questions lined up. We don't do any research on <laughs> guests. Well, so I don't I, even know what some I, of the other I'm hot glad topics you are. asked because, you know, I, I, I got, as you guys can see, I can stand on my soapbox for a long time. <laughs> uh, I'm curious if you, if you and Colin got on the soapbox seat, you'd last longer. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you a run for your money. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, it, it, as I said kind of earlier, we discovered the shale because we thought we were out of oil and natural gas and we got fortunate and we discovered a shale and that's put us in a whole different dynamic today of how to compete in the marketplace. The problem is we discovered the shale. And, and it's twofold because, you know, we have a market now that's on the world scale and we have a domestic market. And I think that we've done a, a really bad plan of how do we sustain that pricing and how do we compete in the market? So as a businessman, what, what I've been telling industry and what they've, what they've agreed with and volunteered to do is to come in and form task force, just like I did in the beginning of this process and come up with a plan to where we can sustain that recognize number one. Who is our competition and where is our market? You know, once we can really dissect that and figure that one out, then start planning how do we compete in that market and how do we compete with sustainability instead of the peaks and valleys that, that this industry always has experienced. Absolutely. Once industry, together with the Railroad Commission, can develop that plan, it needs to be a plan that's unfolded to us as a citizens here in Texas so that we get behind that plan and we agree with that plan. And, and in that plan needs to be all of our environmental protections, which, guys, I can tell you, being in the environmental business all my life, you can comply with environmental rules and stride right along your economic progress. Uh, that's easy to do. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just a level of understanding and education. Uh, so I think, you know, the state of Texas needs to get behind that plan because the state of Texas is huge. We have a lot of people here, a lot of people with good values, that that really really dictate how our politics work in this nation. I mean, we we carry a pretty big stick, mm-hmm. so I think that would get the attention of the federal side to help us to make sure that we develop that marketing plan moving forward in the future. You asked the question; that is a big part. In fact, that has taken mm-hmm. precedence precedence over my guidance documents that I actually started this race on. We have to do that for us to sustain what Texas really is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting when you make, you know, the comments about who's our competition and who, you know, who are we battling against? I've spent a lot of time thinking about this over, you know, the last six to eight months. And I mean, look, our competition is, is, is Saudi and OPEC against Shell, right? And we'll never be the lowest marginal cost operator mm-hmm. compared to them. And 
I look at it and I'm all about free market principles, but I don't understand how we control production output when we have, you know, thousands of EMPs, you know, a thousand plus EMPs and everyone's opening up the wellhead, you know, there, there's no unison or sinking between them. And, you know, I thought this was actually a good attempt by the railroad commission and some of the other operators to start, um, you know, enacting some, some rationing and production. I think that the nation has to move as one in terms of production, but you know, you know, the oil and gas industry, it's never, it's never going to become unionized or socialized, but how, how do you control that? How do you control production output when there's so many operators in, in the space and, you know, you have Saudi and OPEC and they can, they can do whatever they want and they can do it quick and, and swiftly. You know, they, I mean, we really were, we're kind of held. Yeah. I think it's a big part of the, like what you mentioned with the, the cyclical part of the nature, you know, we've, we've, we're not that old, you know, we're only 30. I've been in this business 10 like years three, and I've seen three downturns. Three downturns, though, you exactly. know, so <laughs> exactly. it's like, it, yeah, so it's every, every time that, you know, the gets good, you know, everybody just, you know. Goes to the corner and sits on their hands. Yeah. 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 So how do you, you know, realistically, and I know, you know, you're assembling a task force to answer these questions, but, you know, how do you flatten out the cyclical nature of the business and get American operators, obviously, you know, Texas operators in this case, but Texas operators to try to, you know, kind of being moving in the same direction instead of fighting each other and then yeah. OPEC sitting over here kind of bullying us. Yeah. Around. No, no, I mean, that's a, that's a great question too. You know, uh, it's no secret that Saudi has a, has a leg up on us and their cost of what it is to get their product uh, out of the ground. But it's no secret either that the United States is the largest buyer of imported products in the world. Uh, I can tell you kind of an example there. If if I went to buy a circular saw by, made by Black & Decker and I asked them for a price and Walmart walks in and asks them for a price, who's going to get the better price? Walmart. Mm -hmm. So you talk about, okay, can we compete in that marketplace? Yeah, we can because we do buy other people's products, lots of it. And so I think that that free trade that we talk about, you know, especially under the new MCA, when we talk about putting a plan together, it's, and, I, and I talked about it, taking it to the feds, we're going to have to do better under our MCA agreement today than we have done just this year. And we're going to have to recognize that if you want to trade with us here in the United States, trade, not, not a one-way street. But I don't think that we need to go out and penalize who we're buying from and make it a, you know, monopolized market where you have to pay our price. Mm-hmm. I think we, we as Texas, I know we as Texas, are very smart on how to market our products. And and that starts from, you know, number one, recognizing competition, recognizing actually where your market is, and then looking at the logistics. You know, I, I don't know how much time we got left, but go, I, go on. <laughs> I've got a story that, you know, in 2016, I, I, come, I come from building uh, waste disposal places. My business does part of that, too. And uh, I was trying to develop a huge incinerator that could be economically driven to incinerate oil field waste so that you could reclaim oil and, and stuff off of particles that come out of the hole. And I thought, you know, if anybody could do that, it's probably the Chinese because they, you know, they, they have got lots of engineers over there. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I got introduced to the Chinese shipbuilding company who actually have happens to be one of the largest ones in the world. And I flew over there and spent five days with them. And and I, I'm not going to tell you the experience that I had, but I wasn't <laughs> impressed. Um, 
from that standpoint. But what I was impressed in is they, they took me around because this was in 2016 when we lifted the embargoes and they, and they took me to all these refineries and I'm like, I'm here to wanting to build an incinerator. Why in the heck are you taking me around to these refineries? What they mm-hmm. wanted was an American to recognize the need for natural resources on a consistent basis for China. Yeah. And I kept asking them, I said, well, why don't you buy it from your neighboring country? Well, we don't get consistency because we buy from Russia today. They have a pipeline directly to us. The problem with Russian people is when they have a breakdown in their process, they're not in a hurry to get it fixed. So our plants suffer and we shut down and we're undersupplied. Mm-hmm. Or if the Russians want a price increase, they just turn the tap off. Yeah. And we have to renegotiate that. And there's, you know, whether we have a contract or not. Yeah, what can you do? <laughs> So, you know, Jim, we got so serious about this. This Chinese tell me this. We got so serious about this. We recognized that there was only two ways to get your product to us. You either had to do it by rail or highway to California, or you have to go through the Panama Canal. And what we, what we learned is that those pricing stay harmonious. So they, 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 they interact with one another. If it costs a dollar to get something across there, the other one's charging a dollar. You know, it, they stay neck and neck. There's there's really not a competition there. It's more of a monopoly. This is them telling me that. <clears throat> so I'm not telling you public. That. That's what I said. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I asked him, I said, well, you know, what would you be your solution to that? He said, well, hell, we did. We, we went over and we talked to Nicaragua and we talked to Honduras and we talked to other countries about building what's called an inland port to compete and break up that monopoly so that logistics would start working to get your stuff on this side of the country. And I thought, you know, and, and that flight to China is like 14 days long. It's forever to get over there. <laughs> and I'm on the jet coming back and, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about this in my head and I'm thinking, you know, why, why haven't we done that? Why haven't we looked at that? And when I talk about putting that plan together, that's the ideas that I want presented by our industry to me to write a plan to move forward in that sustainability of the market. That's what it's going to take. So there's a story because the Department of Energy, when oil prices were hitting <laughs> negative, one of our contacts at the Department of Energy is like, if you guys have any ideas, you know, just shoot them over. And Jake was spitballing. He's like, hey, you know, our refineries are, are tooled for heavy grade crude. He's like, if money's not an issue through stimulus money, why not retool our um, refineries to manufacture light grade um, petroleum and we can actually have you know quote unquote en- energy independence and they, yeah, that's uh, a delicate subject yeah it is well they <laughs> we were told by Department of Energy that they ran it up to Trump in, uh, in uh, a meeting with the CEO of Exxon yeah. Chevron all the big players you know, and, and they, Exxon and Chevron has set up a, a really good companies I mean they they've got kind of uh, fail safe in, in any direction that our market goes yeah mm-hmm. you know they, they, they they've set up where they can buy from the best buyer and and they own the majority of, of what our refining is here today, mm-hmm. which I think is great. What I don't think we've done a good job at doing is allowing regulation to bring competition into that market so that we can start domestically running more of our crude. Yeah. You know, um, that, that needs to be part of that plan that we talk about is going to the feds and saying, you know, how do we invite people that want to build refineries here that can run our crude to make sure that our commodity pricing stays, you know, on some some type of – uh, level that we can afford. Yeah. It seems to make sense to me. And I, you know, 
I was like, well, I thought money wasn't an issue. Darren Woods said I was stupid. He's the CEO <laughs> of ExxonMobil. He's like, that's the dumbest idea I've heard. And I was like, well, I'm reading the news. We're talking like $4 trillion worth of stimulus. And it's probably like $20 trillion in stimulus now. Who knows what it was? And I was like, that seems like a drop in the bucket to just go and retrofit these well, refineries. Well, you know, it kind of is, though. And when, when a statement, given what you look at regulation today, you know, regulations from the EPA and a refinery are almost impossible to comply with. Mm-hmm. I know because I work in them every day. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we have some very stringent emission rules there. And technology is is barely keeping up with what those requirements are, but it's from public pressure. And I think that public pressure, as I said earlier, is misconception. I think it's education what the public needs, not not just putting stuff out there that we got to do away with this. Well, why do we have to do away with that? Show me the proof of that, please. That's what we need to be showing. So, you know, I, I think that we as Texas have got to put pressure on them to say, look, you, you've got to get the regulations where we can invite competition into that arena. Yeah. And, and, and I'm t- and again, I'll say it till I'm, till I die. Environmental can be impre- uh, protected just as well as our economic progress. Mm-hmm. It's just some people don't, don't want that to be seen. Yeah. You know, th- th- there's always a reason for all this. Yeah. And, and this year it's, it's become, it's unfortunate because we allow it to get political. We don't think about the well-being of everybody here in America. And, and you know, what is the well-being? Granted, environment's very important, but so is the economics. You know, and, you know, I, I don't think that we have seen disparity yet from the pandemic that we've had. Mm-hmm. But, I'm, but I'm thinking that when that does really hit us, um, people are going to start recognizing that, man, the environment also includes my pocketbook. Mm-hmm. And so we got to make changes to make sure that we're upholding that environment. Yeah. I mean, we've become pretty accustomed to a, a life of luxury when you compare to oh, other, other, other you know, countries. I, right. And I think a lot of people take that for granted. I went to China. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me. I don't want to live in China. <laughs> yeah. I had, uh, I had coworkers, uh, at my last company that would do work in, um, the countryside of China and they would lose 30 pounds in a month. They're like, yeah. And you just, oh, I, I never forget. I, I landed in LA and I had to spend the night to catch a plane the next morning. And I ran, I ran and grabbed my luggage and I ran outside and I jumped in a taxi. I said, I don't care if you got to drive me anywhere. I just want a double meat, double cheese hamburger, please. <laughs> that's how, that's how we were when we got back from uh, Switzerland yeah, and France. But that was because we just couldn't afford to eat there. It was too expensive. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, I went to Rome one time and I ordered a Coke, which wasn't even the size of our Cokes. And he's like, that's $7. I'm like, yeah. I, all I want's a Coke. I don't want a pizza yeah. with it. <laughs> we were the, the, we were the Americans in, in Chamonix, France, eating McDonald's, like 50 count nuggets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Jim, appreciate you coming on the show, man. Man, um, we got the election coming up uh, later this year, so you guys make sure to uh, do your research and uh, be active and vote uh, for the candidate that you think's best. You know, Jim, appreciate you coming on and no, telling your you. story. Thank um, you, guys, and, and, I, and I've, I've so much enjoyed today's conversation. And yeah. and um, you know, I just I just want to say that people really need to know what all this means for their future, Absolutely. and to look at the candidates on the ballot this year mm-hmm. to make sure that they they investigate who they are and what they stand for. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time. You know, like, like we, like I said, before we hopped on the mic, the whole point of this was to who is Jim Wright? 
the man, you know, the guy who's, who's been in the business a long time, somebody who understands the environment. I just think that's like, it's so overlooked in, in politics. Like it's, it's always scripted. It's this fake <laughs> bullshit in my opinion. And so I love this. And, and so thank you once again for, for taking the time and sitting down with us and, and wishing you the best. No, of luck thank you guys. And you know, and that's, that's what I am. I'm just a simple guy. And uh, <laughs> you know, I, I want to make good, sure that, that we as a state, we as a country, stay what we kind of founded America on. So thank y'all very much. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, guys, get out there and vote. If you liked the episode, please take two seconds, share with your friends, your family, uh, leave us a rating review, check us out on YouTube and we'll catch you guys on the next episode.